God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We gather to uh, worship you. Um, and that just, that doesn't only mean singing and, and praying, but, but it includes that. We get the opportunity to praise your name together, to uh, remember and, and remind each other of the great truths of the gospel. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your own son. We thank you for the reminder today that, that he went to the cross for us and that through his death we are forgiven. And we, we thank you for the reminder of the resurrection, that that death has been defeated in Jesus. And, and that is our hope, that is our, our glory. We glory in Jesus to the glory of your name. And, and we pray now that as we open your word, you would shape us to understand what it means to uh, be followers of Jesus, to be experience life uh, in him. So I pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit so that we would be enlivened this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior. Amen. I have a question for you, and I want you to think about this. What would it take for you to change your mind on something that really matters to you? Now, there's, there's a lot of different directions you could take that question, but I think it's a really important one for us. It's also a very challenging one. There, there are things that we believe, things that we hold on to. What would it take for us to actually change our mind about those things? Now, we're, we're going to get deeper into that in a minute, but we're actually going to back off from the deep side of that and come kind of the lighthearted side of it. So we'll use um, college sports loyalties as an example in light of the NCAA basketball tournament starting this week. So I want to just get a feel for the room here and see who is in the room. So I want you to loudly and proudly proclaim your, uh, we'll, we'll do this orally, but we'll proclaim your sports loyalty. So do we have anyone who's a Michigan State fan here? Okay. Uh, several. Uh, what about University of Michigan? A smaller but faithful gathering. Um, anyone who roots for the Buckeyes, Ohio State? Buckeye. Small group, loud group. Okay, what does that tell you? Any, anyone else? Any other schools represented here? Penn State. Penn State. One Penn State guy. All right, now, now raise your hand if you just don't care at all. Okay, that's good. Those of us who don't care, we get to make fun of those who care, uh, who care in a minute. So let, let's take, uh, Michigan State was probably the biggest group here, so let's take Spartan fans for a minute. Some of us, we, we have these deep-seated loyalties to our school, and we were born a Spartan, we're going to die a Spartan, we're going to pass that on to our kids, and so you're wearing green this morning, not because it's St. Patrick's Day, but because you've got a game today, and you want to show your loyalty to your team. Now, here's what happens. It, when we have this loyalty, what happens is we end up not just wanting our team to win, but we end up starting to feel like our school is actually morally superior to other schools. And in our fan base, we're actually better people than people that root for other teams. So it becomes entrenched in our identity and, and who we are. And if you ever watch a game with someone who's a diehard fan, you'll notice this as you watch. It seems like the other team always plays dirtier than the team of the person that is a diehard fan. And you'll notice that the refs always seem to be on the other team's side, and we don't foul anyone, but they're always calling fouls on us. And, and it seems like they're, they're up against the whole world. And then as they watch their team, they think, you know what, they just play better basketball. They just play with so much class and so much dignity. They're, they're just great people, I think. Okay, so let's pick on the, the diehard Spartan fans again. Now, what would it take for you as a Spartan fan to change loyalties? and to root for, say, the University of Michigan this afternoon. <laughs> so let's say that I was going to give you objective evidence that proved that the University of Michigan was not only a superior school, but they were better people 
They played a purer form of basketball and that really everyone should root for the Wolverines instead of the Spartans. What would that be like for you? You can't even imagine it, right? You can't imagine there could be evidence in the world like that. It's totally unconvincing. If I gave you that evidence, you would, you would pick it apart. Well, that's wrong and that's wrong. And you'd find some way of discrediting what I was telling you. And if that didn't work, then you would just kind of resort to name calling and you'd storm out of the room and you'd kind of pity God's judgment on my twisted soul, right? We've, we've got this, this feeling of, no, this is right. And no one can convince me otherwise. This is my team. I'm not going to switch. Now, if we can feel so strongly about things that matter so little, what about things that matter more deeply? What about things that are truly close to our heart and soul? How we think about the world and how it works, how we think of our place in the role and what we're on this earth to do. What about when it comes to our spiritual beliefs, what we believe about God? See, we're going to see today that it's very difficult for us to change our mind on these things. We get stuck in, in our thinking, and it's very hard for us to get past this. We're also going to see how it's possible and why it's so important. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at John chapter 9. If you brought one, great. Turn to John 9. If you want to use uh, an app on your phone, that's fine too. Or you can borrow a Bible from the uh, church, uh, the chair racks in front of you. John 9 is found on page 1664 if you're using those church Bibles. So let's look at John 9 together. Now, John, we've been spending the last several months in this book of John, the Gospel of John. And the book is all about Jesus. So it's written by this man named John. And John has been totally transformed by meeting Jesus. He spent years walking with him, living with him. He's seen his miraculous power. He has heard his teaching, and he has become convinced beyond a doubt that life is found in Jesus. And he wants you and I and everyone else who reads this book to have the same experience, to come to find life in Jesus. But he also was there, and he knows that this is not automatic. Even the people who saw Jesus during his earthly ministry didn't always believe him. And we're going to get a story today that, that bears that out. But John is continuing to press us in on this so that we can see and move past this. So let's look at, at this chapter together. We're going to see the chapter in three parts. First, Jesus says a miracle. And then that miracle sparks an investigation, finding out what's going on here. And then finally, Jesus gives a pronouncement about what this is all about. So John chapter 9. First, let's start with a miracle. The first two verses of John 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in the ancient world, there was this belief that there was some kind of connection. If there was some sort of physical disability, then someone must have done wrong somewhere along the way. Sin and sickness, they had to be tied together. It's not a very common belief today, but there are pockets of, of belief for those who believe in, in reincarnation, that, that you are a reincarnated self. They might believe this kind of thing. Uh, so N.T. Wright points out a, a story of a, a, a soccer coach in Europe who actually got fired for this. Uh, in his religion, he believed in reincarnation. So he was suggesting that someone with a physical disability, they must have done something wrong in a previous life. Well, that doesn't sit well with people, and so he got fired from his job. You see kind of a softer example of this in the concept of karma. So you do good things, and good things happen to you. You do bad things, and bad things happen to you. Now, the disciples don't believe quite like that, but they believe that there has to be some connection between sin and sickness. And so their only question is, well, whose sin was it? Was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus answers. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. 
But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the man isn't blind because of sin, but what's happening here is that this is an opportunity for God's work to be shown in the world. And so now Jesus is giving us the context for this whole chapter that's going to follow. So he's, he's giving us a lens to look through. He is the light of the world. So he is from God, and he is showing God's work in the world. So as we look at this episode, as we look at what's going to happen, that's the lens that we need to look through if we're going to understand this. Jesus is sent from God, and he's doing God's work in the world. He is light shining into the darkness. So here's the display of that work of God in the world. Verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now that's the miracle. This man was born blind. He'd never seen anything in his entire life. From the day he was born, he'd never seen anything. And now, because of what Jesus has done for him, he can see. It's, it's a miracle. It's an amazing thing. Now, naturally, this gets the people's attention. And so this miracle then gives way to the investigation that follows. And this, is the, this actually takes up the bulk of the chapter. It's this fascinating middle section of John 9. And, and you would think that this would be a cause for great celebration, right? This man was blind. He's been healed. A, a supernatural miracle of healing has occurred in his life. Praise God. But instead, it gets people asking, what is happening here? And there's confusion, there's questioning. So the investigation starts relatively innocently, but you'll see that there's increasing hostility as it goes to deeper stages of this. So here's the relatively innocent beginnings. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So the first stage of investigation is people simply recognizing that something incredible has happened here. And they ask the man, well, what, what happened? And he gets the first opportunity to share his story. So this is his testimony. Jesus has healed me. I was blind, but, but he told me to put, he put mud on my eyes. He told me to wash. And, and now I can see a miracle has happened in my life. And so the people see and they recognize, well, something great has happened. And, and now they want to find out more. What is this all about? So they take him to the religious leaders. Verse 13. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. 
as the investigation continues in this next phase, we get the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders of the day. If anyone had it put together, it was the Pharisees. And so they're trying to find out what happened here. So they ask the man, and, and he once again gets to tell his personal testimony. Here's what Jesus did for me. But there's one part of it that catches their attention. They can't get past it. This day is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a day for rest and for worship. This was God's command. He, he gave his people this Sabbath day, that Saturday, so that they would not work on that day. Work was strictly prohibited, and instead this would be a day of, of commemorating what God has done and, and worshiping him, showing a commitment to God. But the question is, well, what counts as work? If work is prohibited, well, then what's work? And so in their kind of theological debates, they think probably making mud would count as work because if you need bread, that's definitely work, and, and making mud, that's kind of like needing bread. So that must be, he must have done some kind of work here. And then healing, healing probably takes some kind of energy, so that must be a work too. So, okay, well, that's it. Jesus must be breaking God's law. He's not keeping the Sabbath. He's done work on the wrong day, and that means, of course, that he can't be from God. And so that's the kind of evidence that they pull out, and they're going to hang on to that thing. That's not what they know is true. Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, and so he can't be from God. But at the same time, it really looks like this guy was healed. And if that's true, well, then isn't that God's power? And so they're, they're stuck here. And so they asked the man who had been healed what his opinion is. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. So this guy knows this was a genuine miracle. And he's become convinced that this is God's power at work in Jesus. But the leaders are, are not so sure, so they continue digging. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The religious leaders here are so convinced that something is not right and so they're digging into this because they want to show that this can't possibly be a real miracle. So they bring in the parents, and the parents want nothing to do with this whole debate. But they can testify to what they know. Well, he is our son. We know that. He was born blind. We know that. But they don't want any other part of it. But what's interesting is that as the religious leaders are trying to disprove the miracle, they've just made it a lot harder on themselves. They've just verified that this actually was a legitimate miracle. His parents have identified him positively, and they have testified that he really was blind. And everyone sees now that the guy can see. He's got his sight back. A true miracle has happened. But the leaders aren't quite willing to give up yet. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, 
I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So we're well past the point of reasoned investigation at this point, right? The leaders are convinced that Jesus is a sinner. He is not from God, even though all of the evidence shows that this was a genuine miracle of healing. And even though that evidence and that healing suggests that Jesus really is from God, that this is God's power at work in him, but they're sticking to what they know. We know he's a sinner. Well, the healed man can't speak definitively to that. He can only say what he has experienced. He knows he was blind, and he knows he was hidden, and now he sees. I love how simple the testimony is. He doesn't have all the theological questions answered, but he knows what happened to him. I was blind, and now Jesus has healed me, and I can see. So he praises God. He's been convinced that this is God's power at work. And the irony here is that the blind man sees so clearly what's happening. He sees what the religious leaders are doing, and he calls them out on it. So they're still trying to convince themselves and others that, that this can't be legitimate. So they're, they're asking for details. Well, what exactly did he do? They're trying to find some kind of, of catch, something to, to show that Jesus just did some kind of trick here. This wasn't really God's power. But the man knows what they're doing, and so he kind of pokes at him a little bit here. Hey, do you want to hear the story again so you can believe Jesus and follow him? Great, I'll tell it again. But of course, they just recoil at the thought of it. No, no, we are disciples of Moses. Here's what we know. We know that God spoke to Moses. We know he is legitimate. We don't know about this other guy. And the man presses the issue. They're, they're leaning on to what they think they know, what they think they understand. But the man points out the whole flaw in this. The crux of the matter is that what has happened shows the power of God. So they claim to know all this stuff, but what they don't know is the most important thing to know. Where does this power come from? The man has become convinced that that power is from God. He has seen it in his life. He has experienced it firsthand for himself. I was blind, and now through the power of God, at work in Jesus, now I see. Well, they want no part of that. So they throw him out of the synagogue. You, you can't talk like this anymore. Banished. See, the leaders are so convinced that they are right and so convinced that Jesus is wrong that as they do this whole investigation, they're not trying to find truth. They're just trying to discredit Jesus. The only thing they want to hear is things that are going to support their position and protect their own interests. It makes me think of the, the tobacco companies, what they did back in the 1950s. The first research was coming out that was clearly showing that smoking led to lung cancer. And if you're a tobacco company, you've got a lot of money at stake in this. Uh, they have been trying to push so that smoking was ubiquitous, that all American adults would be smokers, and that their profits would just skyrocket up. So they were, they were really successful in the whole ad campaign side of things. And now this scientific research is coming out saying that their product destroys lives. 
And they see that this is going to be totally adverse to their profits. Well, when there's this much money to be had, they're not going to go lightly into this. They are going to fight for everything that they have. But they know that if they just run ad campaigns, that people aren't going to believe them. There has to be something to back it up because this is scientific research. And so they decided to have a more devious, more sophisticated approach. They decided that they were going to start funding scientific research that was designed specifically to undermine this research that had come out, pointing out the health uh, effects of smoking. And so they found people who were uh, dubious about the connection between cancer and smoking, and they just started to bankroll them. So up to this point, scientific research, right, was about finding truth and publishing truth. And whatever your, the results of your study was, you publish that thing. Well, that's not what the, the tobacco companies are going to do. They're going to bankroll and pay these researchers to do research designed to actually skew that. So if they do a, some kind of experiment and it shows that the tobacco is bad for you, well, they're not going to publish that. They're going to hide that away and not talk about it. But they're going to try to instead just talk about, well, we, just, we need to do some more research. We need to look into this more. Let's not all panic and get all up in arms about tobacco being bad. Let's just do some more research on this. But see, it's not about truth. It's now about skewing public opinion to get their own backing, to keep their own interests. And this has been happening for, for decades, right? It's only gotten worse since then. But th it's maddening when you think about it, but that's the world that we live in. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're past the point of trying to, to pull out the truth and, and investigate what's actually happening here. No, they have an interest in this. And the only thing they want to do is to discredit Jesus because their own, uh, their own interests are undermined by him. So they're just trying to attack him. They don't care about the truth. And so this man who has been blind, but now he's been healed, he sees right through all this, and he calls them out on this. And so they throw him out. But his story's not done. We're going to see that Jesus is going to re-enter the scene now, and he's going to give you and I an opportunity to have our eyes open now as well. So we close here with a pronouncement of what this is all about. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So this wraps up this guy's story. Jesus has just uh, fixed the, the biggest need in his life. He was blind and now he can see. And the man responds in the right way. He believes Jesus. He's put all of his trust in him. So in the context of the book of John, what that means is that he is now a disciple of Jesus. And that means by believing in Jesus, he now has eternal life that he gets to experience, abundant life, true life. This man now gets to experience that. And now Jesus tells us what this is all about. Verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now remember what Jesus had said before this healing. He had given us eyes to see what's going to happen. He said, I am the light of the world, light shining into darkness, and he is doing the works of God from God and doing the work of God on, on this world. And now he's coming back and bookending it to say, here's what this was all about. This was, in effect, an enacted parable. So this man was physically blind, and Jesus has made it so he can physically see. It's a miracle of healing. 
But that's actually pointing out to the need that every one of us has. That, that uh, healing this man of his physical blindness is pointing to the need that each one of us has, that we are spiritually blind and need our eyes open spiritually as well to understand that Jesus really is from God doing the works of God. So Jesus here is, is coming to enact God's judgment, he says, so that the blind will see and those who claim to see will be shown to be blind. Now, Jesus' whole purpose in coming, he says in, in John 3, is, is salvation. He came to rescue the world. And we have to understand that that salvation isn't just kind of giving people a few more points in their tally. And that salvation isn't kind of giving people a little boost on the way in their self-salvation. Instead, that salvation is taking people who are totally hopeless and giving them life. So in, in the terms of this passage, taking those who are blind, a blind person can't do anything to make themselves see, and making it so that they can see. That, that's what is happening here, and that's what this episode is all about. Jesus came to make the blind see. And the reality we learn from the whole course of the Bible is that every one of us is born spiritually blind. Whether we grew up in a, in a Christian family, where we grew up in church, or whether we've never been to church before, we all, our, our natural starting point is to be spiritually blind. We simply cannot know God in our own faculties, our own mental faculties, our own minds. But the good news is that Jesus came to change that. He is light shining into the darkness so that we can actually see. And that's great news for us. But there's also the other side of this. For those who claim to see, Jesus is exposing that truly they are blind. Verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So the leaders here, they're protesting. Well, we're not blind. We've got the law of Moses. We, we're worshipers of God. We, we know that you're not from him, but we are. So what are you talking about? We're not blind. But they're just sealing their fate by claiming that they can see rather than admitting their need and humbly asking Jesus to help them see and understand. Instead, they become entrenched in their position. No, we can see. We're not blind at all. We're okay here. And what they're doing is effectively shutting themselves off from the only source of hope and help. It's all because they can't admit their own need. See, this is what we've been talking about. Change is so hard for us. It is so hard for us to see that we are in true need and to admit that to others and to be able to accept help from them. Even getting to that starting point of knowing that we need help from others is so difficult. I think about my own life and I have had countless just stupid examples of how I'm so uh, reticent to receive help from other people. So I think back to when we were first married, the, the dumb example is, is for me was grocery bags. For some reason, we, I had this idea that you should never have more than one trip from the car back to your apartment after you go to the grocery store. And we, so we lived up on the second floor apartment, and, and it didn't matter how many bags I had. I could have a dozen bags that I had to get out of my car, but I would take them all in one trip except no help along the way. So I'm loading up my arms. I've got like, you know, uh, marks on my hands from the, the weight of the bags. I'm trying to like carry things under my arms, and I'm going up the steps. And if you had seen me, you would have taken pity. You'd ask if I needed help. But I would never would have accepted that. No, I've got this. I've totally got this. It doesn't matter if I drop everything and try to opening the door to my apartment. But no, I've got this. I don't need help. And too often, that's the motto of my life. I don't need your help. 
Jesus comes to, to free us from the foolishness of that. Change is, is so hard for us. But Jesus comes to transform us, to do for us and in our lives what we even have a hard time admitting that we need. That's what this is about. The healing here is an enacted parable. Jesus comes to turn our world upside down, to make the blind see, and even to help us understand that we are blind and are in need of this kind of healing. That's what we have to understand. We have to understand that whatever our previous commitments, whatever the loyalties we had before, whatever we think that we know we're so sure about, we need him to open our eyes so that we can see even the most basic things and to understand we need total transformation. But is that what we really want? I want you to think about this question. What do I really want from Jesus? I think for some of us, we just, we just want to feel better. Or maybe we, we just want a little bit of, of help. We just want to know that, that we're okay and that someone accepts us. But do we really want to see? And of course, if I put the question like that, every one of us is going to say, yes, of course I want to see. But then to see what, what that takes, to understand the cost of getting to that point. It's not just that we need a little bit of a boost. We need total transformation. What that means is that we have to give up our loyalties to things that we deeply love. It means opening up our lives to full surrender, holding nothing back, bowing before Jesus, making him our king, making him the center of everything in our lives. Is that what we really want? John, the one who is writing this letter, is totally convinced that Jesus is the source of life. That, and when he's talking about life, he's talking about abundant life, true life, eternal life, the only life worth living. He's become convinced of that. And many of us have, have become convinced of the same thing. But it requires so much more than just adding Jesus to the things that you're already doing. It's more than just saying he's another accessory to my life. He is he's fulfilling that religious felt need that I have. It's so much more than that. Instead of that, it's releasing our pride and getting rid of that and coming before him as a brand new person willing to learn everything from him. And I love that, that, that God gives us baptism as a way of, of showing what this is about. So when we baptize people, we take them, we, we hold them under the water, we lift them up like they're dying and they're rising again. Last week I was listening to another pastor and he said when he baptizes somebody, he holds them under the water until there's no bubbles coming up anymore. And then he raises them up out. I mean, he was joking. You don't actually kill people. But it's, it's showing that there's a radical transformation that happens here. Like you get all wet, you drip water. But, but what this means is that my old self, who I used to be, that person's dead now. They don't exist anymore. I, I'm now new in Jesus. I've been raised to new life. I am resurrected in him. I am now a new person. That's the beauty of baptism. It's like, no, something really big has happened. This is radical transformation. It's not just adding a little bit to your life or a little bit of new teaching or a little bit of insight. No, it is total transformation. You were blind and now you can see. You were dead and now you are alive again. That's what baptism is about. That's what we are offered in Jesus. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I want you to remember that that is what has happened to you. That is the truth about you. I think it's very easy for us to get discouraged we get frustrated with ourselves and frustrated with the inability to, to really do what we feel like God is calling us to do. And, and we get stuck there and feeling bad about ourselves. But we've got to remember that if, if today you believe that Jesus is, is the Savior of the world, if you put your, your trust in him, 
That means that a miracle has happened in your life. It means that God's Spirit has brought life to your lifeless heart. A miracle has happened. You, you were blinded and now you can see. You were dead and now you are alive again. And what the Bible says happens is, is that means that Jesus is inside of us. He is in us and we are in him. That changes everything. Now, if you're not yet sure about this, that is what is being offered to us. Total transformation. New life in him. Some of us have been in church for a very long time, and we've never experienced the freedom and the power of what this is talking about. Today could be your day. Today could be the day where the Holy Spirit opens your eyes so that you can see for the first time. You can understand that you were brought from death to life, a total transformation. So it's about us acknowledging that we are blind, we are in need, and asking God to do this miracle of bringing you sight, bringing you to new life in Jesus. I want to pray for you right now that we would receive that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for sending your son to us. We thank you for the the hope and the healing of the gospel. I do thank you that it's not just a small thing that is being offered to us, but whole life radical transformation. God, for those of us who have come to find life in your son, I pray that we would hold on to that, not to get discouraged, but to see that you offer us true, abundant life and that we've been made new through your son. And God, for those who are not sure about this, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through the barriers that we put up so that we would acknowledge how needy we are before you. Not, not in a self-destructive kind of way, but in a hopeful kind of way to see that this is what you offer us. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would confirm the truth of what you offer, that you would bring our blind eyes to be able to see, that you would bring our dead bodies to new life. We pray this in the name of your Son. And now as we sing, as we praise, may we praise for your glory now and always. Amen.